You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Just uh, bow your heads and pray with me for our time together. Heavenly Father, we do need you every hour, and I pray particularly for this hour, that your Holy Spirit would be at work to help us discern spiritual, true, and eternal things and apply them to our lives, convict us of sin and righteousness, comfort us, strengthen us, point us to your Son, Christ. Pray for those, young and old, who do not yet believe that today the scales would fall from their eyes and they would behold Christ, just as Paul did, just as clearly as Paul did on that Damascus road, behold their Savior and put their faith in him. Lord, bless our time together now. Again, thank you for giving us your word and your spirit. Amen. So we're going to be in Job chapter 42 today. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your phone, there's Bibles uh, around you. We also have these Job scripture journals. <laughs> this is like the last day in Job. Uh, but if you wanted one of those, just to journal in today, those are at the back table. Feel free to get up and, and grab one. Uh, we're obviously not going to need them after today. So um, please tur- yeah, be turning to Job chapter 42 today, and we'll hopefully be able to wrap things up, kind of bring the book of Job home, and... Uh, and see the purpose of the Lord in Job's life and for our life as we conclude this great book. I'm going to read starting in verses, verse 1, uh, which we, we ended on last week, but I'm just going to reread it to get Job's final speech in front of us, and then on down through the end of the chapter, and then we'll dig in uh, bit by bit. So Job 42, verse 1, this is after the Lord has answered him from the whirlwind twice, showing him his great power and control and wisdom over the universe, as well as over forces of evil and darkness and violence, things that threaten to destroy us, that God is really, truly wise and sovereign in the way he governs things. And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He quotes God, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Quotes God again, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had before, then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, 
Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So after Job has been humbled by the Lord and confesses, truly God's wisdom can't be questioned. No purpose of his can be thwarted. God knows what he's doing. He repents in dust and ashes and confesses that he had foolishly spoken of things he didn't understand. He had questioned God's wisdom. Both Elihu and God were right in challenging Job. That Job did not deserve any of the suffering that came upon him. That wasn't because of some prior sin. But in the midst of his suffering, he did sin with his lips in the way that he spoke of God. And he should not have done that. So Job humbles himself. And the Lord then turns his direction to Job's three friends and rebukes them. Kind of confirming that Job was righteous. He hadn't really deserved any of the suffering that came upon him. He rebukes them in verse 7. He says, My anger burns against you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what was right, as my servant Job has. Of all the things that they said about God, the details were maybe sometimes true, and their conclusion, though, was totally wrong and misapplied in a way that actually harmed, it, it destroyed Job's soul, and it hurt his, their friends, rather than comforting him in their suffering. And so God rebukes them, says, no, you guys were in the wrong this whole time, and Job was in the right. He tells them, you have not spoken of me rightly, as my servant Job has. Which actually should raise a little bit of a question here, what does God mean by this? Because both Job, God and Elihu have just been rebuking Job for things that he said. So what do they mean? What exactly, which speech of Job's are they pointing to here that says, Job spoke rightly of me. My servant Job, he spoke right of me. I think most clearly, immediately, verses 1 to 6 in chapter 42, that Job's confession of God's purposes, Job's confession, his vindication of God's righteousness and justice, Job's own repentance is speaking rightly of God. And also, through Job's speeches, he did. He did speak at times rightly of God. And certainly before his suffering, he was upright, blameless, and righteous before all people. And so I think here is just a a general commendation of Job, not even just in his language, but in his continuing to wrestle with God, to hold on to God. He never gave up searching for God and refused to let go until he had his answers, even if at times he, in the depths of his soul, really questioned God's goodness and justice. He still knew that his answers ultimately resided with God himself. And so Job is now called a servant of God. His relationships are restored. His relationship to God is restored. Now that he has humbled himself and repented, he's being exalted. God calls him my servant, which is a title reserved for Moses and Joshua and then some of the prophets in the Bible. It's a really high title for God to say, this is my servant. And ultimately it's said of the Messiah in the the, uh, prophecies of Isaiah. So Job is lifted up. He's, He's exalted He humbled himself in the dust, and God has exalted him. He's saying, Job is my servant. God's love never left Job. If you remember all the way back from Job 1, God was so proud of Job. God was bragging to Satan about how awesome and upright Job is. And the question driving the whole tension, all the conflict in the book was, does Job love God for God, or does Job love God for what God has given him, or the protection God's given him? And Satan wagers, if you just take everything away from Job... He's going to curse you to your face. But God knows better. God knows what's within Job. Even though he's been on a total whirlwind or a roller coaster of emotions across 30-some chapters of speeches, he ultimately never curses God 
he ultimately continues striving and seeking after God in his wrestling. So his relationship with God is restored and his relationship with his friends. He's made a mediator between them. God is not going to forgive Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar apart from them going to Job and asking for Job to pray for them. So Job is so righteous in God's eyes. He is so close to God. He has an audience with God, which is what Job wanted all along, that he's actually the one to whom these men need to go. Like, I'm not going to listen to your prayer of repentance, but if you go to Job, I'll listen to him if he prays for your souls. Job himself, in chapters 9, 32 to 33, chapter 16, 19 to 21, chapter 19, 25, he was pleading for an audience with God, pleading for a redeemer, for a mediator, someone to stand before him and represent him to God, kind of like an advocate or a lawyer, someone to represent him before God's throne. And now Job himself is elevated, exalted to that very position, to where he is the one to go before Job, sorry, go before God and represent his three worthless friends in their path towards repentance and reconciliation with Job. So he's been down in the depths and the dust of sorrow and now God has exalted him and shown, no, truly, like, my relationship with Job is great. I love Job. I will listen to his prayer as he prays for these worthless friends. Here's an example. Verse chapter 16, 19 to 21. Job cried out, Even now behold my witnesses in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, and my eyes pour out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Job was pleading for that experience. And he got to be in the presence of God and plead his case with God. And now he's in the presence of God pleading his friends' cases before them. And so Job is actually ultimately restored to God. He's also restored to his friends. They have sinned against him by judging him, declaring him wicked when he was righteous. They have not comforted him. They haven't been true friends to him. And so their reconciliation to God must go through reconciliation with Job as well. They need to repent ask forgiveness, and beg Job to forgive them and plead their case before God. So Job's relationship with God and with his friends is restored here. James 4, 8 to 10, you'll remember this from, uh, from earlier this winter, if you were here with us through our sermon series through James. I don't have a slide on this, by the way. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That is what Job has done, and now his friends need to follow him in doing that exact same thing. We also saw from James chapter 5, this note about confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Job has been healed. He's confessed his sins before God, and now he's in a position to pray for his friends as they confess their sins to him, their sins of being worthless comforters. Job is in a position to pray for them so that God would heal them. And here we have just a beautiful picture at the end of Job of a, a type, an archetype, a shadow of the Christ to come. Right? The book of Job began with there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Right? We, could, we could tell the story of Christ the same way. There was a man in the land of Judea whose name was Jesus. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then God let all Satan's plans unfold as the powers of earth conspired to destroy the Son of God. And yet it was also the will of the Lord to crush him. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
And so we have in Job a, a foreshadowing and a, and a great type of Christ here, pointing forward to the one who would come, who himself was perfect, blameless, upright, but would be crushed by the evil schemes of Satan, but ultimately at the will of God, so that he could be exalted, raised up to represent you and me before God's throne, that when we go to Christ and confess our sins in repentance, he prays for us so that we may be healed. Hebrews 7.25 says this about Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus didn't just ascend to the Father to rule and reign as king, but to continue living out his priestly calling, to pray to the Father on our behalf. When we go to Christ and, and ask for things, particularly when we ask for forgiveness, when we repent and humble ourselves, Christ himself presents himself before the Father. He says, look at these nail holes in my hands. Look at this wound in my side. Look at my perfect sacrifice on behalf of this man or woman. Please forgive them. And the Father hears his prayer just as he will hear the prayer of Job for his three friends. And that's, that's absolutely beautiful. And so today, if you have not done that, just know that you have a sweet, comforting Savior in heaven who can go before the Lord on your behalf. If you've never confessed your sins before the Lord, if you've never humbled yourself as Job has for your deeds, for your thoughts, for your words that have not glorified God and have actually rebelled against him, you can do that this very day. You have someone like Job, you have Jesus Christ the righteous in the throne room of God who can present your case before God and say, I'm on his side, I'm his advocate. This man, this woman, wash them clean with your spirit because they've turned to me in repentance and faith. Finally, we also see, now if you look at verses 10 to 17 through the end of the book, Job's very fortunes are restored, which is really surprising because all of Job's friends were arguing, Job, if you just uh, confess and repent of all the sin you did before this happened to you, God will restore you. And so here at the very end, it almost seems like the whole book's undone. The whole point was, no, Job, you didn't sin. This was something beyond your wisdom, beyond your counsel. You didn't understand what was going on. But Job, you didn't sin. You didn't bring about this suffering, the loss of your family, the loss of your wealth, these afflictions, these boils all over your skin. You didn't do anything to deserve that. And his, his friends were trying to convince him that he did. And so here at the end of Job, it feels like, was that all wrong? Was that actually the case? Were his three friends right? Right? God is restoring to him his relationship to God, his relationship with his friends. And now he's restoring to him all of his wealth. His cattle, his sheep, his camels, his family. He has seven sons and three daughters now. His children are restored to him. Not the same ones, new ones that are born to his wife. And then he gets this beautiful life that's calm, peaceful, it seems like, and he gets to live 140 years. What is going on? Well, I don't think that this is reaffirming the retribution principle. That all along, Job's friends were right, and this whole book's been really confusing. And here's why. Because first of all, God does this to Job after he has repented in dust and ashes. Not of anything he did prior, but because of the words that he had spoken. And so Job never declares, yep, you're right, friends, I had sinned previously, and I deserved all this. Job isn't commended for that kind of repentance. He's commended for repenting of things he's actually done, things he actually said. But furthermore, I think all of this, why is Job's fortunes restored? It's a really nice ending, really nice closure to the book of Job. Makes us feel good. I think 
it's reaffirming this principle that we saw in chapter 41, verses 11 to 12. Right in the midst of the speech about Leviathan, God raises this question to Job. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Which he uses to justify, Job, everything you lost, when you lost it, I didn't owe you anything after that. You didn't put me in your debt when you lost your health, your children, your wealth, because it was all mine to begin with. When you first got it, it was a gift. And when I took it away, it was my right to do that. And now it's God's right to restore it to Job, doubly fold. And I think that doubling of everything proves that this isn't God somehow paying a debt back to Job, because if he was, he would pay back Job just one for one for what he, was, what he owed him. He would pay back Job the exact same number of camels and sheep, the exact same number of children. He would have a standard life of about 70, 80 years. Instead, God doubles everything, doubles his lifespan, doubles his wealth, and fills his household with children. And so I think this is God demonstrating just an abundance of grace and mercy and compassion to Job. That like, no, you don't deserve any of this. You don't deserve to have anything restored to you, Job. But not only will I restore to you what you lost, I'll double it. Because I love you, I care for you, I'm compassionate and merciful towards you. We have this interesting note from James 5.11, if you turn to the next slide. At the end of James, James is comforting believers, telling them to be patient, to endure the suffering that they're undergoing. And as an example, he holds up Job. He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord was, is compassionate and merciful. And man, if it weren't for this end of this chapter, it'd be really hard to draw that out of Job. I don't know anyone who would look at Job chapters 1 and 2 when Job is losing everything and go, yeah, God was trying to show his compassion and mercy through Job. How does James pull that out of the book of Job? That God's purposes are compassion and mercy. I think it comes here at the end. The end comes at the end, right? That God's purposes were manifold. There's all sorts of reasons why God allows suffering and misery in this world, why God delays to vindicate his people. But ultimately, God is compassionate and merciful, and his purposes are to restore his people. One way or another, God is going to repay, he's going to restore to us even more than anything we could ever lose in this world. God's purposes for his people is restoration, to restore, to bring goodness to them. And Job gets that at the end of his life. And we too actually will have the exact same ending to our story as the book of Job, if we have faith in Christ. A couple disclaimers here. Oh, before I get to that, let me point this out too. The steadfastness of Job. So we saw the purposes of God, his purposes are to, to restore. It's also interesting that James says, look at Job's steadfastness, because there's times that when he's wrestling through his speeches and he's in really dark places where it seems like he's not being steadfast or he's saying things that he shouldn't about God. So I point to Job as an example of steadfastness. I think first point out that Job is a believer. He's suffering as a believer, not as an unbeliever. There are wicked people who suffer because of their wickedness in this world. But if you go back to Job chapter one, he is upright, blameless in all of his ways. And that's exactly what draws Satan's attention to him. That's exactly what goads Satan to wanting to afflict him with so much suffering, is the fact that he loves God so much. He loves God for God. Satan can't stand that. And so in the midst of Job's suffering, he kept seeking the Lord. He kept seeking the Lord as a believer, even if he was on an emotional roller coaster. 
And that sediment of pride that was stirred up in him because of, his, uh, because of his situation caused him to sin with his tongue and criticize God's wisdom and justice. At the end, he recognized that and he repented in dust and ashes and he upheld God's honor. He passed the test before anything was restored to him. He confessed his love and repentance and humility before God and proved Satan wrong. He also was steadfast in a way that Christian steadfastness is not stoicism. Stoicism is the belief that like, right, we should just have this kind of straight face, stonewall approach to suffering. It's kind of like man up theology, like just be tough. None of this actually matters. Uh, no, Job and Christians should not suffer like that. Job wrestled with God. He didn't just go, oh, uh, I guess this is my lot. Okay, I'll try to suffer really well. No, he initially refused to curse God and then all the overwhelming sorrow of his afflictions came storming in on top of him. And he wrestled with God. He refused to let God go. He demanded his answers. He knew only God would be able to solve his conundrum, would be able to give him answers for his situation. And so even if in the midst of that wrestling, he said things he ought not to have, his steadfast is, is an example to us. Just like Jacob wrestled with God for a blessing at the well in Genesis, uh, I think, 32, so Job, uh, maybe quite literally, right? Like Job's told to gird up his loins, which could be a reference to ancient belt wrestling. Like him and God are wrestling at the end of this book in chapters 39 to 42. Him and God are wrestling over this. And Job gets beat really bad, just like Jacob does. But at the end of the day, God blesses Jacob. And at the end of the day, God blesses Job. And so I think James here points to Job as an example of steadfastness because Job refused to let go of God in the midst of his suffering. He held on to God and knew that his deliverance, his only hope of salvation would come from him. So that's a comfort to us, that when we suffer, it's not a call to just be stoic, straight-faced, calm demeanor, that we can let people in, we can let them know how we're feeling. We ought to, we should confess to one another the doubts we're having about God, the questions we're having about his wisdom and justice, and let our brothers and sisters pray for us. And so James holds up Job as an example of steadfastness that we're to model, and as an example of God's character, his very nature being one to restore his people with compassion and mercy. If you want to go to the next slide here, the purpose of the Lord, that it's compassionate and merciful. Romans 8, also another beautiful text about God's purposes for his people. What's God's purpose in the midst of our suffering, in all of our lives? Paul writes, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God's plan, his purposes for us are identical to Job's. His purposes are compassion, mercy, restoration, goodness. If you are in Christ, you have a happy ending to your story no matter what happens between the start and the end. No matter what happens in the middle there, God's plan is to restore your life, to restore all the things that you've received in the body through suffering and evil in this world. Two disclaimers though. First, this is not a guarantee that this would happen in your present life. It could, like Job. Before Job died at 140 years old, double the normal lifespan, he did have everything restored to him. Or we could think of Jacob, sorry, I mean Joseph in Genesis. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. He's then acu falsely accused of assaulting a woman in Potiphar's household and he's sent into jail. So he goes to the very depths and then God raises him up to be second in command in Egypt. 
and uses him, works through him to save his people. And at the end of that great book, Joseph says, you guys, to his brothers, when you sold me into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God's purposes were working through that. God wanted Joseph to be sold into slavery, to be sent into the dungeon, to, so that he would ultimately be raised up to be able to keep the whole Middle East alive through the midst of famine. They were working it for evil, just like in Job's life, Satan was working all that misery and suffering for evil, but God was working it for good. And at the end of Joseph's life, he's restored. But you also look at the Apostle Paul, the man who penned these letters, had his head removed from his body by Roman swords under Emperor Nero. He was not restored. He was beaten, he was persecuted, he was thrown in jail, and then finally executed. He was not set free to go on to Spain to preach the gospel, to live a long life, to continue writing letters for a Bible. He was executed. But he can know, he can say that God's purposes for him are good, that he's working all things, even Roman execution, for his good. And so, though you may be restored in this life just like Job was, all of us for sure will be restored in the next. Again, James says, the purposes of the Lord are compassion and mercy. And Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so one last disclaimer here, this again, this promise of restoration, that no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going through now, no matter what you will go through, that you will ultimately be restored, healed. You'll receive compassion and mercy from God. That promise is only for those who love God. That promise is not just for everybody. In fact, God is not working all things together for the good of those who don't love him. This is the final end, the final state of those who reject God. From Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No plan was founded on them. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So for those who love God, God's purposes, as James tells us, are compassion and mercy. Mercy. Like, all of us deserve that lake of fire. But for those of us who repent and go to the man in God's throne room and plead with him for mercy, for those of us who are in Christ, God's purposes are good, compassion, mercy. But those who are not, God's purposes are justice. That everyone will be repaid for their deeds and thrown into the lake of fire. So those are my two disclaimers up front. That if you're not in Christ, you have no expectation of restoration or mercy in your life, but only justice and judgment. My second disclaimer is that your life may end brutally, as Paul's did, without being restored. But as Christians, we know that there's another life on the other side of this one, which we will be given tremendous, unspeakable blessing. And so now I want to lay out just seven of those blessings for us to end our time here, to reveal God's purposes for all who are in Christ. What is exactly this good that Paul speaks of? What are the good? What is the good God is directing all things together? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? What is that good? The first one, resurrection. If you look on the slide here, John eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? No matter what happens to us, Paul can say, yes, I'm going to be executed by Nero. 
right? Or men and women executed by the Roman state under persecution. Or maybe you've lost a loved one, or you've lost a child, or you're going to lose your own life one day. All of us will. One of the promises, one of the good things God is working all things for, even in our death, he's using death to move us forward towards resurrection. That's a promise of God. The next one, one of the things that God is working all things together for is a place of rest for his people. This is John 14, one to three. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you, a place of rest, a house, a place where you belong. So no matter what, if in this life, in the midst of suffering, you're separated from others, you're an outcast, you have no rest, you work all of your days for nothing, barely making ends meet, God's promise is there is restoration in your future, that I have plans to give you a place of rest and security to dwell forever. The next one, God promises to restore our own bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 to 52 says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. I don't know if it's disability, disease, disorder, mental illness even, maybe ugliness, we don't feel as beautiful as we ought to be or we're disfigured even, and then ultimately our own decaying bodies that comes with old age to all of us. God's promise is I will restore that. I will give you a new body. Your perishable body will put on an imperishable one and you will inherit the kingdom of God. The next promise is for treasure, crowns, and thrones for all of those who are in Christ. Matthew 6, 19 to 20 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Maybe you've lost wealth, you've lost possessions that were precious to you. Maybe you never managed to save up any sort of nest egg, and you struggle barely staying alive through retirement. Maybe an economic disaster wipes everything out. Maybe our country is afflicted with famine or natural disasters in which we're, we're all left starving, right? No matter what, God's promise is that actually there's a treasure in heaven that you can store up and that you will receive at the end of your life. That no matter what you lose in this world, those possessions are nothing because they perish to the imperishable treasure that you can store up for yourself in heaven. Next, God promises crowns, James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Maybe you've never received the due recognition for your efforts at work or in the home or at school. Maybe no one ever praises you or points out the good things you've done. Maybe nobody ever recognizes your successes, your good qualities. Everything you do goes unnoticed, but God notices. And his promise is that if you never receive the recognition you're due in this life, you will be honored with a crown when you reach heaven's gates. And then also a throne, Revelation 3.21, Jesus promises the one who conquers, oh, stay there, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father in heaven. 
So no, no matter how you're belittled, how you're embarrassed, put down, how much you're humbled by others around you, Christ will himself exalt you to his throne with him in the next life, that your years of embarrassment, of shame, will be restored to you. Next, number five, there's a promise of fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Maybe your life, you're experiencing no rest, no pleasure. Every day is just a grind to make it to the next. You never get a chance to take vacations. You never get to enjoy nice things. You never have the wealth, you have the means, or they're stripped from you to enjoy beautiful, good, glorifying things in this world. Beautiful things, tasty things, satisfying things. You're never satisfied. God's promise is, I will restore those years to you. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy into eternity. Number six, there's a promise of glory. There's a promise of great glory for those who are in Christ in the next life, that God will restore to us a life not of dim struggle, but of glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This current suffering that we're undergoing, no matter what's gone on in your life, even stuff that's really severe, right? Paul, beaten with rods, chased out of town, imprisoned, executed eventually, is saying all that stuff that happened to me was actually building up this expectation and this weight of glory. That when I get to the next life and all things are restored to me and God showers blessing and goodness on me, it will be even sweeter because I have gone through this suffering and affliction now. The next promise, let's see what we have, number seven, great, is for God himself. God promises to restore our relationship to him perfectly, entirely face-to-face in Revelation 21, 1-4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. The end comes at the end. This is the end of your Bible. This is the very last chapter of your Bible. And this is the last chapter of your story, if you're in Christ. It's already been written. Your destiny, your end, the conclusion to your book, to your life, the author has already written it that God himself will dwell with you and restore all things to you and wipe away every tear and all the suffering that you've gone through will pass away from thought. If you're not in Christ, this is not the case. But if you are, if you believe in Jesus, the one on the throne is making all things new. So in conclusion, again, James points us to the purposes of God, that Job was steadfast. He wrestled with God. He refused to let go, even if in his darkest moments, He didn't always say what he ought to have said about God. And we have seen the purpose of the Lord in Job, how God's purposes are compassion and mercy. God's purposes are good. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him to restore all things to us. Whether in this life, maybe, perhaps, 
but definitely in the life to come. What allowed Job to finally be satisfied in his suffering? To put his hand over his mouth and end his questions and protests was seeing God. Remember chapter 41, excuse me, 42, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job beheld God. He beheld a vision of who God was. And that's what allowed him to be satisfied, even though he hadn't had anything restored to him yet, and he was still suffering incredibly. And what James is exhorting first century followers to do in the midst of their suffering, persecution, oppression by the rich and powerful, is to look at Job and through Job to look at the Lord's purposes, purposes for restoration, compassion, and mercy. So I'm going to ask us all to do now, if you want to go to the last slide, just a review of the things we talked to. These are the promises of God, promises to restore no matter what happens to us. And so I'm just going to give you a time of guided prayer now. For those of you who are in Christ, I want you to think about things you've suffered in the past or things you're suffering now and how just pick one of these promises that is sweet to you right now, that can minister to your soul right now, that even in the midst of your suffering, you can trust God, that he's working that thing for good. And so you can bow your heads now and just have a minute to pray with the Lord. Musicians, you can kind of come up and and prepare in just a second. If you're not in Christ, there's no reason why today, in this very moment, you can't come to him. Why you can't call out to the man in the throne room of God, the man on the cross, who is now seated on a throne and has the keys to death and Hades itself. He can let you out. He can rewrite your story. He can write a different chapter to the end of your book. And you can call it to God right now in repentance and faith and ask him to forgive you all your sins and restore your soul, give you a new heart and a new spirit. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.